The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. This is probably the last episode of season two, and I have felt so blessed and thankful to get to do this work. If you haven't done so yet, please take a moment and complete the survey that is in the show notes. This is going to help me determine if I come back for a third season, because I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to at this point. And if I do come back, your input will be instrumental in helping me decide which topics you want covered this next season. So if you haven't done it yet, please take a moment, check out that survey. It should only take a minute or two of your time max, but it will be very helpful to me as I plan my next steps going forward. Now, having said that, I want to address the tone of this final episode. I've got to be honest with y'all here. Um, I'm feeling kind of tired and I'm feeling kind of angry. There's a lot happening in the world right now. And recent events have pushed me beyond my typical levels of frustration and anger. Um, Not least among them is everything that is unfolding right now around abortion rights in the United States. So I'm going to do my best to bring a tone to this episode that is my my typical balance of um, energized and graceful, my typical balance of uh, pastoral and prophetic, but you might hear a harder edge today than you normally hear. And sometimes I think that's justified. So I want to name that up front. Um, and, and finally, I just want to say that this is a hard and difficult and complex issue. And we need to make sure that we're remembering that people are at the center of this discussion. And we need to continually evaluate what we are talking about when we are talking about life and choice. And so so at the end of this episode, I'm going to bring us back to this question of, of what does it mean to actually protect life, okay? Having said that, let's turn to the topic at hand. As I'm sure you've heard by now, abortion rights are under threat. In early May, a draft of a Supreme Court opinion was leaked, which highlighted the Supreme Court's intention to overturn Roe versus Wade. This news sent shockwaves throughout the country, and those shockwaves are still rippling today. If you turn on any cable news channel, you will likely see some sort of discussion or debate about this issue. Now, if you're watching news that skews more conservatively, you might find some discussion about Roe v. Wade being potentially overturned, but but you're more likely to encounter people talking about um, and wondering about who leaked this document. Um, and how the leaker should or shouldn't be punished. There's a lot of exaggeration about what it means for this to be leaked. If you look at news that skews more moderate or to the left, you'll find much more discussion about the ramifications of what might happen, what might be lost if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And so as is typical, the coverage is going to vary, but but every news outlet and, and even on most social media channels, this issue is being discussed. And one of the reasons it's being discussed is because a reversal of Roe v. Wade would undo what has been um, the law of the land for roughly 50 years. That is a big deal. And, and while what was released was simply a draft opinion, given the current makeup of the court, it seems likely that that opinion will hold. It seems likely that at the very least, from all I've read, the Mississippi law on abortion, which bans abortion, 
after 15 weeks will remain in effect and probable that Roe v. Wade will be overturned on the whole. Now, I could be wrong. No one knows for sure. But from all I've seen and read, personally, I'm bracing myself for that eventuality. That is why this is a big deal. So I want to spend some time today to unpack why this matters and discuss what the ramifications could be for women and families all across the country. But first, I want to examine the roots of this obsession with abortion rights. While some see a religious or faith-based obsession about the beginnings of life or ideological convictions that equate abortion with murder, I see political gamesmanship and outright racism. And if that seems like a stretch, just stay with me as we ask, what would it take to protect life? Listen in to find out. So as you may or may not know, my child is about to be two and a half years old. That means that he's still young enough for me to remember how we got here. I remember the awe I felt the first time I saw him on the ultrasound. Like it, 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 was, it was mind-blowing to me, quite honestly. And that's the moment it became real. That's the moment that I felt like a father for the first time. I remember feeling him kick during the third trimester. I remember what he looked and felt like the moment he entered this world. And I recall the following five days we spent going back and forth from the NICU and the stress that induced. I'll be honest with you, those moments changed my perception on what it meant to be a parent and on what it meant to bring life into the world. I knew life was precious beforehand, like I, I understood that, but I felt the miracle of life truly embodied when my child entered the world. Life is genuinely precious. That's not up for debate. I'm not disputing that. Transparently, though, I've never been in the position to have or seek an abortion, and I've never been with a partner who's wanted to seek one out while I'm with them. So I can't tell you how I would personally respond or feel in that situation. I've got some guesses, but I can't know for sure. So to some degree, I'm talking about a thing that has never directly impacted my life, at least not as an adult. However, I do have friends. I do have coworkers and I do have loved ones that have had to wrestle with this decision. And it's their stories that remind me that this debate isn't about what I would do personally. It's not about what I would do personally. It's about empowering women and families to make the choices that are best for them. Period. So I just wanted to start with that and frame it. That's, that's where I'm coming from. That's what this is about for me. And while it may seem like this debate over abortion is timeless, it isn't. Conservatives haven't always been so hyper-focused on ending access to abortion. So when did this start? Well, let me back up and, and ask an even broader question. When did the religious right become the religious right? I mean, when did this voting bloc, largely made up of white evangelicals and evangelical Catholics, come to existence? To understand how this political and religious union came to be, we have to turn to Brown v. Board of Education. Now, for those that remember their history, this was a monumental civil rights ruling made by the Supreme Court in 1954. And this Supreme Court decision overturned what had been 
almost 100 years of legal precedent and undid the doctrine of separate but equal that was established in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision of 1869. And though Brown v. Board was explicitly dealing with school segregation, and it basically uh, illuminated the lie, the myth, that you could have schools that were segregated, but somehow also equal in terms of what they were providing to their students. This ruling said, no, you actually can't do that. If they are separate, they are inherently unequal. That is the way it is played out for a hundred years now, and that is no longer okay. So basically, it undid segregation. And though the ruling came out in 1954, it wasn't until the 1960s that many schools had to begin desegregating. And in response to this ruling and the imminent, quote, threat of desegregation, white families across this country started their own schools. In Mississippi, several all-white private Christian schools in Holmes County were launched in the mid-1960s. According to a 2014 article by Politico magazine, quote, in 1969, the first year of desegregation, the number of white students enrolled in public schools in Holmes County dropped from 771 to 28. In the following year, that number fell all the way to zero. So what does this mean? It means that white families were pulling their students from the school system and either moving entirely or just building their own segregated private schools. This obviously has a ripple effect on funding and the overall quality of schools and ends up reinforcing the unequal educational practices that Brown v. Board sought to challenge and undo. So in response to this white flight and, and creation of segregated private schools, several black families in Holmes County sued the Department of the Treasury. They sued because they were arguing that these new all-white private schools shouldn't qualify for tax-exempt status. And guess what? They won. And this victory infuriated white evangelicals who were angered by the fact that government could meddle in their schools. Soon after, Richard Nixon, yes, the Richard Nixon, ordered the IRS to begin denying tax-exempt status to all segregated schools in the United States. Public, private, it didn't matter. If a school was segregated, it was in violation of the Civil Rights Act, and they were to be denied their tax-exempt status. One of the most well-known institutions that was affected by this was Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. You may have heard of it. The IRS sent several warnings to Bob Jones, but the institution was defiant. At first, they said just flat out, no, we do not admit African Americans. Now, the IRS famously is persistent, and so they didn't just take no for an answer. Let's return to that same political article that I referenced earlier to see how this played out. The article states, Following initial inquiries into the school's racial policies, Bob Jones admitted one African-American, a worker in its radio station, as a part-time student. He dropped out a month later. In 1975, again in an attempt to forestall IRS action, the school admitted blacks to the student body, but, out of fears of miscegenation, refused to admit unmarried African-Americans. The school also stipulated that any students who engaged in interracial dating or who were even associated with organizations that advocated interracial dating would be expelled. So basically, uh, the school tried to just play games with this. They admitted one African-American who was a part-time student. He didn't stick around long. Then they admitted others, but they... <laughs> this this is so absurd, it, it makes me laugh. I'm sorry, y'all. 
They admitted other African-American and black students, but said, hey, y'all can't date white students, right? And if you are even uh, in relationship with an organization that is promoting interracial dating, you're out. It's wild to me, absolutely wild. And this wasn't that long ago, okay? But this was the stance that Bob Jones took. And to no one's surprise, eventually they lost their tax exempt status. And this was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back for many uh, ideologically right religious leaders. So they came together due to the threat of government intervention in private schools. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, what I meant to say is they were upset that the government was trying to force them to send their kids to school with black folks. Sometimes we can be way too uh, correct about a thing. The issue was not government intervention. At least that wasn't the primary issue. The primary issue was racism. And this issue was playing out through the policies of segregation and tax-exempt status. So again, the core issue here dealt with segregation and racism. And that issue manifested through tax-exempt status of private schools. Now, leaders such as Jerry Faldwell realized that they couldn't maintain long-term energy and build a broad coalition on the issue of desegregation alone. So they held a planning call to determine what other issues should comprise their agenda. And people were on this call throwing out issues and concerns, and someone on the call just said, hey, what about abortion? And there were no objections, so abortion got added to the list of concerns for this new movement. Now, I'll admit, while that narrative account does seem to be factual, it's probably a little too simplistic. Because following the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, conservative unease over legal abortion had begun to grow. What is noteworthy, though, is that in 1971, this is two years before Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, that bastion of radically progressive politics, they adopted a resolution that expressed support for abortion in situations involving, and I'm quoting them here, rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother, end quote. Now that is a direct quote from the resolution that was passed in 1971 by the Southern Baptist Convention. Those are their words, not mine. So two years before Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention had that stance. And do you know what their stance was in 1974 after the Roe decision? It was the same. They literally resolved to reaffirm their 1971 decision. It wasn't until 1976 that their stance took a more conservative shift that rejected abortion under any circumstance. That is wild to me, and it speaks directly against this myth that abortion was some magical unifying factor among the religious right or even white evangelicals at the time. Opinions were split. However, by the election of 1978, political leaders began working to support and elect national candidates that were pro-life and soon after, the religious right as we know it was born. In fact, in 1975, Jerry Faldwell launched the Moral Movement, which basically has come to be what we think of when we think of the religious right today. So what am I saying here? Why even bring up all this history? I bring it up because I want us to pay attention to the link between the creation of the religious right and the opposition to desegregation. If those are the seeds of the movement that we see today, what do we expect the fruit to taste like? And if this movement truly did start around issues of racism, 
then how might those same themes, ideologies, and beliefs be woven into its current structure today? But once abortion did become the dominant issue of the movement, it was there to stay. As we know, conservative politicians, judges, legal scholars, advocates, and activists have been working for decades to chip away at abortion protections and even overturn Roe v. Wade altogether. And now it looks like their efforts will be successful. All right, let's briefly touch on some of the theology uh, or at least some of the theological arguments that we hear undergirding uh, this anti-abortion stance. And I do mean briefly because, again, I personally don't think this is primarily a religious issue. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't have religious or faith-based reasons for believing what they believe. But I think that with many things underneath those stated beliefs, there's actually something else happening, even if folks aren't aware of it. So having said that, here are a few verses that you might get when you do a Google search on the biblical argument against abortion. Exodus 20 verse 13, it simply says, you shall not murder. Now, this is really just a general proclamation that you shouldn't kill other people. There is no evidence that abortion was specifically being addressed here. And I have no reason to to think that it was, quite frankly, given the context uh, that this verse was written in. Psalm 139, 13, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, this is beautifully poetic, but again, it's really not talking about abortion. It's not even talking about pregnancy. What it is saying is it's expressing a belief that God intimately created someone, right? A wonderful belief, but, but nothing about when life begins, Nothing about if abortion is or isn't murder. Like you have to take a couple logical and ideological leaps to get there. And I don't think it is um, appropriate to take this verse or even the surrounding verses and make those ideological leaps. Because next we have, honestly, one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And honestly, folks, if we're using this verse to speak to abortion, I don't even feel like we're trying at this point. Like in context, this verse simply justifies God's call on Jeremiah's life. It isn't speaking about any sort of ideological or scientific understanding of when life begins or is viable or anything like that. And and so I think we're putting something onto this verse that isn't meant to be put onto it. And, And to me, that's disrespectful to the scripture. Um, And so if we're going to honor the scripture and the text, if we're going to honor the spirit within which it was penned, if we're going to honor the meaning it might have for us today, we need to be careful about what interpretations we are overlaying onto it. And and I think anything about abortion is is frankly not in line with the spirit of what this text uh, was meant for. And the verse or the verses rather that I do want to point out that I think maybe deal most closely with the topic of abortion come from Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 through 23. And I'm not going to read it, but in summary, it states that if two men are fighting and one strikes a pregnant woman and she loses the child, he has to pay a fine, right? Now, at face value, that could seem like a a blatant argument against anyone who's pro-life, right? You could argue that, oh, if he's just paying a fine and it's not a life for a life, like if he were to kill the woman, then clearly the author of that text and God doesn't really believe that a fetus is uh, a human. I don't know that that's the case. Um, What I do know in my research is that there is debate about whether this verse is meant to apply to a miscarriage only or if it can be extrapolated 
to speak to abortion. And, and frankly, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't have a strong opinion about this one. I'm just bringing it up because I think it's the most direct verse or the, the most direct verses that I can find that might actually speak to the issue. And it is unclear. So we'd have to do a deep dive into ancient Near East laws and customs to really determine with any sort of degree of certainty if the Israelites at that time thought of a fetus as a human being or not. So in my opinion, there is no clear scriptural directive here. If you choose to believe that life begins at conception and you want to use some of these verses to justify that belief, so be it. Go for it. And I say that because our religious beliefs don't have to be strictly logical. I don't think anyone's is. However, we do need to reflect on what we say we believe. And we do need to do our best to honor and respect the spirit within which the scriptures were written. And thus respect the spirit within which we can and cannot make interpretations of them. That is my whole point here. All right, so we've unpacked some history and we've touched on a little bit of the theological arguments around the, the anti-abortion side of this debate. But can we take a moment and reflect on the practical implications of what will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned? In the event of Roe v. Wade being struck down, a number of states will outlaw abortion entirely. Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming have so-called abortion trigger laws on the books already. This means that these states have already passed laws which would outlaw abortion with few, if any, restrictions the moment or shortly after Roe v. Wade is overturned. Yeah, you're thinking about this correctly. That means that each of those states had to put these laws into effect before anyone knew Roe v. Wade might be struck down. They were done just in case. South Dakota's law, for instance, went into effect in 2005, and it would outlaw abortion except in cases where the life of the mother was threatened. So that's 13 states in which abortion would become illegal shortly after Roe was struck down. And when you factor in the additional states that are likely to put new bans in place or begin enforcing old bans and laws that are already on the books, Anywhere from 23 to 27 states could outlaw abortion with few restrictions after Roe is overturned. That's half the states in the country. So this would mean that anyone seeking abortion services in those states would have to travel to one of the remaining states where abortion is still permitted, or they'd have to try to receive abortion drugs by mail. But again, practically, so what does happen if fewer women get abortions? Well, we already know that this is going to disproportionately impact women of color and low-income women. And women of color, particularly black and indigenous women, already deal with much higher rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality. So it's reasonable to assume that trend will tick upward, meaning black and brown women and children will needlessly suffer and die. It means that women will be forced to carry pregnancies to term even when they're pregnant because of rape or incest. I can't even fathom the psychological pain that can cause someone. And what kind of family dynamics will that child be born into? Do we care? Let me tell you, I've spent my entire life trying to heal from family dynamics that led to the trauma I experienced. So just putting a kid in foster care or up for adoption, like some suggest, is not going to solve the problem. And even if a woman carries a pregnancy to term, what are we doing to ensure families have the resources they need to provide care and support for that child? What will we do about the childhood hunger and homelessness crisis in this country? How will we address the steady decrease in access to quality health care in many parts of the nation? 
where if we're forcing women to have children without setting up the systems necessary to take care of them, what are we doing? What about this idea is pro-life? I just need someone to make it make sense. I haven't even touched on the fact that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, other issues like the right to contraceptives or marriage equality could also be in jeopardy. That's because the legal underpinnings of Roe have also been used in cases addressing those other issues. So if Roe is struck down, along with its underpinnings, that could pave the way for other legal challenges which would roll back progress in different areas. So in short, this is a terrible idea. It would be a terrible thing for Roe to be struck down, and yet we seem to be heading that way. So what can we do? I mean, obviously we can donate to organizations that provide uh, contraceptive care and just reproductive health care for women in general. That's a given. Do that. We can support candidates for office that are committed to upholding Roe v. Wade and expanding access to reproductive care across the country. We can vote. Yada, yada, yada. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are important. They're also very obvious. So do all those things. But we also need to ask ourselves, how did we get here? And I don't just mean how did the, the far right movement start? How, how did conservatives win power? I mean, we know gerrymandering, uh, stolen elections, all those things, right? But I'm asking culturally, how did we get here? Why have we convinced ourselves that this issue isn't also tied to the centrality of whiteness? I mean, as I said earlier, the roots of the religious right as a political movement begin in a desire to uphold school segregation. That is why this movement began. Rolling back access to abortion would almost certainly disproportionately affect women, people, and families of color. It would disproportionately harm low-income and communities of color. The states that are pursuing these bans are doing so with conservative majorities in their legislatures and state houses. And those majorities don't represent the voices or the political beliefs of most of the people of color in those states. So again, you might see religious belief or political differences, but I see white supremacy at play. And our unwillingness to tackle racism and white supremacy head on in our theology, in our churches, in our denominations, and in our families is a big reason we are here today. We want to believe that the system as constructed works for everyone, or at least that it will work for us when we need it to. However, we're being reminded that this system wasn't designed for all people. And because of that, it's doing exactly what it has been designed to do time and time again. So I say, yeah, do all the obvious things. Donate where you got to donate. Vote when you got to vote. Support elected officials that are going to champion the rights that you care about. But also keep interrogating whiteness, please. Keep exploring the history of systemic injustice in your communities, in your churches, in your faith traditions. I don't have an answer to the question of whether or not abortion is right or wrong. And I don't care to. Transparently, I don't know anyone that loves abortion. What I do know is that it's a very difficult choice to make. And we need to allow the people and families who are affected by that choice to decide what is best for them. In short, it should be between them and God. That's the freedom I would want. And that's the freedom we need to be offering those that are affected most by these decisions. Life is full of choices and most of them aren't black and white. It's incredibly messy being human. 
and we're all doing the best that we can do to navigate the mess without causing undue harm along the way. I really believe that. So if you're asking me what it would actually look like if we were serious about protecting life, I'd say something like this. We'd have expanded access to contraceptives for anyone that needs them. We'd improve and mandate sexual health education across the United States. We'd beef up pre- and postnatal care and ensure that midwife and doula services are covered. We'd eliminate the cost of giving birth so that it's free. We'd work to end food deserts that lead to hunger, especially in low-income and BIPOC communities. We'd take seriously the dangers of maternal and infant mortality, particularly among Black and Indigenous women. We'd reform the foster care system so that more resources are dedicated for in-home care. We'd expand access to mental health care and make it more affordable for people to seek the treatment they need. We'd decriminalize substance abuse and expand treatment options. We'd provide every household with a living wage to ensure that children aren't dependent on their parents finding a job that pays them enough to have food and shelter. We'd increase funding for women's reproductive health. We'd work to reduce domestic violence and make it illegal for anyone with a domestic violence charge to possess a firearm. We'd expand access to resources for battered and endangered women and children. We would tighten regulations and beef up enforcement on environmental pollution and work to clean up soil and groundwater affected by pollution while covering the medical costs for those that are suffering deteriorating health as a result of their exposure to the pollution. Should I continue? Because there are so many things we need to do if we're going to enact legislation that is actually pro-life. So let's fight for those things. I have no idea how this Supreme Court case is going to turn out, but if I'm being real with y'all and I strive to be as real as I can be, I think the next few years are going to be very difficult for those of us that have visions of a more equitable world. I just do. So keep asking yourselves, what's it going to take to create the world we want to live in? Keep visioning. Keep dreaming. Begin working in your communities and with local leaders to build power and invest your resources in those people and organizations that are actively challenging systemic injustice. Above all else, please remember that all of this work begins within us. Be aware of your blind spots, the places you've internalized the same old narratives that you want to critique. Because if we aren't changing, how can we expect our families or our communities to change? I know I may have sounded angry at times or flippant or snarky, throughout the recording of this, and that's because that's how I feel. To those that, that might be listening or those that are listening that have loved ones that hold a pro-life or anti-abortion view, we've got to look at them with grace. We've got to offer love continuously. That cannot stop. However, love doesn't mean we don't get angry. Love doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. Love doesn't mean we stop doing the work or quit saying the hard things. Love means we fight so that everyone has a shot at the life they deserve to live. We fight so that everyone can live a life in which they can, they can enact their God-given beauty and power in the world day in and day out. That's what love mandates. Sometimes that means correcting in truth. Sometimes that means standing up for those who cannot fight effectively for themselves because the system is hell-bent on destroying them. Sometimes it means standing up for ourselves and building power within our communities. All of that is important. So once again, at the end of season two, we're sitting with this question, what would it take to really protect life? I think we know the answer. 
So let's get to it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciate this work and want to support me, please take a moment and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and for our audience and community to grow. And I also encourage you to take a moment and share this podcast on your social media platforms so that others can listen to and reflect on the same things that you're reflecting on. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have questions or topics you want to suggest, feel free to email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's Tapper with two Ps. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for holding my vulnerability and for the parts of myself that I offered today and for going with me on this journey. We've got some answers. Now, let's get to work. Mm-hmm.